All right, Tara, guess what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm so utterly excited about today's episode. I'm not I'm I'm not even going to respond to that. I can't believe the dairy jokes are already starting. <laughs> Tara, utterly excited. This is great. The dairy puns are going to be so fun. Yes, this is going to be, there's going to be a lot of dairy talk in this episode. So Mitchell, I hope you are not lactose intolerant. I'm not lactose intolerant. <laughs> Plenty of good old milk. 2% is definitely my, uh, my milk of choice. All right, well, let's get, uh, let's get rolling. You guys are listening to the Fieldwork Podcast, your favorite podcast that's produced by Farmers for Farmers, and I am Mitchell Hora. I'm a row crop farmer from Iowa and don't know anything about dairies. <laughs> and I'm Tara Vanderdeusen, grew up my entire life on a dairy farm, married a dairy farmer, and now I am an environmental scientist that works for dairy farmers. So I know maybe one or two things. It's good to balance out my 0% expertise with your 100% expertise. I think that'll that'll help out here today. And, uh, and I'll just try to listen and uh, listen and learn here. Yeah, well, I'm super excited about today's guest. We have Stephanie and Blake Alexander. They own the first certified regenerative dairy farm in the United States. The farm is, a, is on about 9,000 acres in Northern California. So they're doing this on a really big scale. Uh, their farm products... Uh, are sold at Whole Foods nationwide. So welcome to our podcast, Stephanie and Blake. You guys are husband and wife, right? Yes, thank you very much. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So I guess, you know, starting off the conversation, how did you guys meet? Well, I grew up on a dairy farm in Southern California, so lifetime fourth generation dairy farmer and prayed I'd marry a dairy farmer. And I met Blake at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, where he is from Northern California, where we are now. We, we, we somewhat met in the middle, you might say, because I, uh, I, I grew, born and raised in Humboldt County, which is extreme northern California. And then the so the dairy farm, nine thousand acres on the crop side of things. How many head of cattle? It's got to be a big dairy operation here now, too. C- correct, uh, Mitchell. It's uh, yeah, we we're nine thousand acres in three counties. Uh, so two of those counties have the cattle in it, where we're grazing and, and milking cows, and in, in five different locations or, or milk barns. And then uh, we also grow alfalfa hay in, in uh, eastern California, extreme northern corner of California. And, and so a couple thousand acres of alfalfa over there to support the, the dairy cows here on the coast. Uh, and we are about 9,000 head of total cattle. Um, that makes for uh, easy math. <laughs> One cow per acre. <laughs> I like it. But so how far spread out is that for me being in Iowa? Uh, how many, like how many miles, I guess, side to side? Sure. Yeah. Um, our our uh, about 110 miles uh, between our, our northern dairy operation where, where we are right now in Crescent City, California, coming to you live from our kitchen table. And then uh, I'm actually right after we're done here, I'm driving down with my daughter to uh, our, see our son in, in Ferndale, which is uh, the, the southern most dairy. And um, Joseph and his wife run that farm for us. And that's actually the dairy I grew up on. It was my grandfather's and my great-grandfather's, and, and, and now Joseph is fifth generation on that farm. That's really cool. Walk us through, you know, how has the farm expanded? How did you guys get into some of these things you, that you're at today? Was the dairy operation always uh, kind of diversified into a different angle, like the organics and the regen, or kind of how did all that come about? I remember a tour we took to Tillamook, Oregon, to visit some farms. We were on a grazing tour. 
driving home with all five kids and sleeping in the Suburban and, and Stephanie and I were talking and thinking and, you know, how are we going to, uh, you know, make our farm a viable option for our uh, for our adult children when they, they get married and meet their spouse and make a career decision? You know, we would love to be a viable option. I think that's what really motivated us and led us down this path. That was kind of in the uh, mid-90s and uh, by the end of the 90s, we were converting some land to organic production and started our first uh, organic milk sales in, in 2001. Yeah, that is such a great point. I also loved uh, Blake sharing about the famous dairy farmer vacation where you pack your kids up and go visit more dairy farms. I did that from New Mexico all the way up the coast of California through Oregon and Washington when I was a kid uh, in a single car with four kids. So I, I really took a memory trip down memory lane, appreciate that. Uh, so getting back to your dairy cows, though, a little bit. So you're milking, I think I saw in the notes that you're milking about 4,000 and you have five barns. Is it pretty evenly split? Like, how did you end up, I guess, with so, like, with the five barns? Um, did you build any or was it things that just, like— were, you know, did they come up for lease or sale? And you were like, you know, this is the next spot for us. Correct. Uh, lease or for sale. And, and it just kind of, it just happened. You know, it's not like we sat down and set goals and, and, and made game plans. It's like uh, neighbors retire and sell out and, and, you know, the land's right there and we could use it. And there wasn't a lot of competition for land over the last 25 years in this part of the country. Um, and so it just kept happening. So you, you guys... You went on this trip, and uh, evidently now we're gonna have to find a, a coin name for that trip there, Tara. I didn't know that this was like a, a thing. You know, this is the cultural differences. I gotta, I'm gonna have to pick up on. You know, so that's in my notes. Dairy farmers pack up everybody and the vacations to go see another dairy farm. So you guys did that and said, okay, organic is a route that we want to go to. But I mean, how many acres was it on at the beginning, and how has that progressed? We just started with a dairy that was across the river from us that we had just acquired. And we basically remodeled that milk barn on a credit card back when credit cards were available real cheap and we had room to do it and uh, remodeled an old milk barn and started milking organic cows there. It took a, a year or two to transition because you just didn't know what you were doing and you call people and who knows how to do something organically and how do you do this and how do you raise your calves. So it was a process. And then we went through the process of getting all of our land certified. That was easy because we growing grass pasture and having nutrient water or manure lagoon water, we had access to that kind of fertilizer. So we didn't put fertilizers on our land. Um, so the land part was easy. The animal part, that was a big learning experience. Oh, I have so many questions. I'm like trying to figure out where to start next. But you brought up the um, certification, like the organic regenerative certification. I'd love to kind of go into that, the difference between the organic certification and the regenerative ag certification. We had a guest um, earlier in the season on that shared a little bit about the certification and some of his concerns with the certification is that regenerative is so specific to an area and what your resource concerns are. So maybe share a little bit about the certification and what it looks like for you in your area or how you feel like certification could move to other places in the country. Sure. Great. Um, we're very open-minded to a lot of things along the way, you know, starting 25 years ago with the concept of organics and then as these regenerative um, programs 
kind of popped up, if you will, and, and we learned about them, then you know, we asked our daughter, Vanessa, to sit on their committees and be part of the pilot program. And, and so we, we did that simultaneously with two groups, the Savory Group and then and the Regenerative Alliance. And we then got ourselves in a situation where we were national, nationally launching our milk last year. And this is now going back about 16, 18 months ago. And um, Whole Foods says, well, you say you're, you're, you're regenerative. Uh, you know, do you have a certificate? And so we went to both those groups and said, hey, we need a certificate by January of uh, 21. And they said, okay, we could probably make that happen. And, and so, so, you know, we, we asked, we got it. And, and so there, boom, we were the very first certified farm for both groups. So, so, so there's a difference between the two groups, a huge difference. And, and I'd, I'd like to maybe touch on that. I was just going to also add, when we bought the ranch, we um, befriended an agronomist who came through our area. He's from Oregon. And he taught us about organic matter and soil and what we can do to grow that organic matter. And in reality, that's what we've been doing since the uh, early 90s on our pasture grass because we saw the benefits of growing that organic matter, working with our compost, working with our nutrient water. And that really is a basis of regenerative so we yeah. had started that process long before we heard of the term. Yeah, literally 30 years ago. It was in 92. So, so we, um, as, as we got certified by both groups, and at this point, Vanessa is handling all the questions and the, and the data and the, you know, the, the trial work and, and everything. And so as I started to understand the difference between the two, um, there, there's a huge difference. And so the Regenerative Alliance is, is very, very prescriptive. Uh, I could throw two more berries in there, extremely prescriptive. And, and they will, um, th- th- there's a cross-section of, of everything. Uh, they're literally uh, doing a two-day survey right now, and they're in, uh, surveying or interviewing our employees today. And so there's that aspect, there's a humane aspect, and then there's the uh, soil aspect. And it's very thorough and very um, detailed. And, you know, we're, we're trying our hardest to, you know, continue that certificate and, and, and always be part of that program and help them. Um, but on the flip side, when I, I look at uh, the Savory Institute, and, and I had met Alan Savory back in the early 90s and, and uh, just was really impressed with him. And so I've watched his work uh, for 30 years and, and um, you know, the holistic management and, and everything they're doing. And so along comes his, cert, you know, a group to do the certificate um, and, and verification of, you know, results in this field. And I really like that. And so, they're, you know, to get qualified there, it's, it's not really officially a certificate from the EO, EOV is... Uh, um, what is EOP? Ecologically outcome verified. And so they're, they're sampling fields and they're measuring uh, organic matter, like Stephanie mentioned, and, and carbon. Um, so we have seen on our ranch in 30 years, uh, soils go from about 2% organic matter up to 8 to 15. And, and that's phenomenal um, advancement. And, and so it, it's fairly easy to do on a grazing farm or a grazing dairy. I think a grazing dairy is just really the, you know, our, our secret to success. And, and so once you understand how, how to build organic matter, then you're ultimately uh, sequestering carbon and, you know, 57% of organic matter is carbon. And so 
as you're doing that, you're, you're, you're really benefiting yourself. And so as a farmer, we build organic matter. Now we irrigate in the dry season about every 30 days instead of every 10 days because the sponge of holding moisture and, 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 and water in the soil is, is just huge. It's about, uh, you know, it, it's, just, it's just a very, um, I guess it adds efficiency to everything we do and yields go up. So I, I like to say it this way. When, when we, I was giving a talk at American Farm Bureau a couple of years ago, lots of conventional farmers, of course, and and um, I think the savory program is a way to kind of. Uh, I would encourage your listeners, your far- farmers, to consider some of these regenerative principles because I believe they had yield and profitability to the farm. And when I talk about the savory program. You don't have to like switch churches and religions all at once. You can just experiment with some of the stuff and pay attention. Um, and, and so the biggest thing I've learned in this organic path is, is that, you know, urea kills earthworms, for instance. And, and the earthworms are truly our friends and all that microbiology. And once you learn to understand what's in the soil and what they need, then, then you know, stewarding your land, uh, being a good farmer is paying attention to that and not doing things that harm them. And, and, and then yields go up on a more sustainable uh, path. And, and I, I just think it snowballs in a really positive direction. You're preaching, Blake. I love it. It's, uh, we've been, yeah, on our farm, we started no-tilling in 1978 and using cover crops in 2013, but my organic matter has only gone up 1.4% in the last 10 years. Uh, so we still got a long way to go, but sitting pretty good. A lot of our stuff now is five, 6% uh, kind of ranges. Uh, so we still got a long way to go here for Iowa, uh, but I don't have that many, I don't have uh, every day out of the year that I'm able to draw down carbon quite like you guys can either, but we're making progress and and uh, moving in the right direction. But with you guys' stuff overall, is it all uh, the pasture and hay ground? And you mentioned the sil- or not or the haylage coming off of it. Is there any row crop too, or it's all uh, the, the pasture and, and it's all perennial cropping systems then? C- correct, yeah, it is all perennial, permanent pastures. Uh, we, we quit disking and plowing 20 some years ago and literally don't even own those tools anymore. And, um, what we do is we, we do what we call a three X treatment. We, we had a really nice dry spell here for a couple of weeks. And so we just did some overseeding in a, in an older tired pasture, if you will. And we go out and airway it with a, uh, airway machine and drag a harrow behind it. And then we put some compost out and then broadcast some uh, new seed right behind uh, with a four-wheeler. It's just a real simple, low cost uh, program. And, you know, we just gave a field a facelift that'll last for years and, and uh, yields will go up and, and, you know, it rained a couple of days later. And so everything's good. And our compost that we make is pretty amazing. We get our, our manure solids that are in our freestyle barns and uh, maternity barn. And then also for, in our maternity barn, our calf hutches, we have wood shavings that we get from the local lumber mills. So that's added to the compost. And then we get the fish waste from three different counties. And so that gets added. And then we have the chickens and, of course, animals that would pass away here on the farm. That gets composted as well. And we turn and turn and turn. And then at the end, you get this just black gold stuff that is wonderful for compost on the fields. 
I love a good compost conversation, but we're not going to dive into that today. But I want to go back to what a little bit of what you said about the certification with Savory. Uh, is that that's I'm saying the name right? And then what Mitchell said about you know differences. Like I, when I hear you talking, I'm like, oh wow, I'm so excited. And then I'm like, what does this look like though in the Southwest where we get 10 inches of rain a year? Or like Mitchell is, you know, the, there's just differences. You know, does Savory kind of account like for? that regenerative is going to look different in different places? Like, how how are we, like, measuring that? Like, is that specific? Like, is there a standard? Or is it, like, we're looking at what your soils are like and how you're improving them? Yeah, great question. Uh, I don't even know their standards. I've never seen, like, our numbers laid out and say that you've got to do this and do that, right? I know our numbers because I see our soil reports. But I, I don't know how they look at it. But I do know that they're universal around the world, they're, they're just really good at what they do. They understand um, desertification around the world. And, and so all, all of this regenerative movement is kind of in response to uh, soils and, and climates becoming more brittle because we've lost maybe forest, rainforest effect. We've lost, uh, you know, just the, the moisture in the, in, in the ground going from the ground to the sky it, up and down all the, all the time. And, and, um, and so that's what it's all about. And so your 10 inches of rain is a lot more than they're going to get in a lot of spots that they're working with. Mitchell, your, your comment about your, your soil improving by 1.4, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm sure that's quite, quite a bit relative to where you started, right? And, and, and uh, you know, and so there, there's just a handful of things that can be done. And, and as Stephanie mentioned compost, we're just getting free anything from everybody. <laughs> and when, whenever we, we just say yes to it and put it out and, and put it in the fields and let, you know, nature take and do the rest. Well, this this regenerative movement continues to really progress. And now, especially as there are going to be more certifications and we got to tell our story more, what did that look like? Like, how did you guys tell that story? But then also, what's your definition of what it means to be a regenerative farmer? What's your definition of regenerative ag? I would say for us, it's it's do no harm to the soil. Um, take care of it, honor it. And just like the, the gut, people are paying attention to their gut health as a human, well, the gut health of a plant is that soil, and we want to just keep feeding that microbiome down there in, in it. So back to what's the definition? You know, I think there's a lot of it, but you're building, you're regenerating soil and um, growing that organic matter. Yeah, I, I like to, uh, you know, explain it to people in a short sense is that, you know, regenerative comes from, you know, the opposite of degenerating. And so we're, we're doing positive things out in the fields that are literally building soil. And so think of it as our ranch is getting an inch taller every 10, every decade. And, and, and you know, that, that's what's happening. And um, the other thing that the, you know, the, the, the true definition here is really, um, it's probably coming from the Bible. This is God's work. This is what the system that God gave us and, and that, uh, you know, paying attention to the biology and what's going on in the soil is the most important thing we can do for human health, period. And, and so I, I, that's, that's what motivates us and that's how we understand it and that's, that's our definition. We are going to take a quick break and we will be back in just a minute. 
I, we've done a lot of talking about my favorite dairy product, which is cow manure, but there are lots of other great dairy products and we haven't even touched on your brand, um, marketing to, you know, the Bay Area and then expanding nationwide. And so I want to deep dive. Um, I have y- your yogurt sitting right now in my fridge um, that says, you know, regenerative, uh, A2. There's a lot of information on your packaging. Um, so maybe just share a little bit about your brand, what you guys put out there. Um, um, and what what all that entails? Well, we we just kept producing our milk, and and when we um, went organic and being grass based, we looked to New Zealand for our genetics back then, and because we wanted grass based genetics, we weren't finding them in in America so much, and went to that direction. We also were getting their periodicals. And that led us to um, Kiwi Cross. It led us to A2 Milk's information. We learned about that after reading a book, The Devil's in the Milk, um, by Dr. Keith Woodford. Taught us all about A2. When our creameries we were selling our milk to didn't want to do anything in the A2 world, we decided to launch our brand in 2017 and had a couple people that came from Whole Foods that also talked to us and encouraged us to do that. So they came and worked for us. And and kind of guide us through the process. And um, now it's been five years and we are nationwide with our milk, but we started with our own bottle, our own mold, and our flagship product is a 6% milk. Um, it sells on the West Coast. Mitchell, you said you drink 2%. I don't think you can handle 6%. I didn't even know that 6% 4% milk was a thing, <laughs> to be completely honest. Like, I thought it was whole 2%, 1% skim. That's it. Like, that's all that I've see on our shelves around here but yeah so yeah the six percent didn't exist you know that's absolutely something we came up with we had to change legislation in california so that we could call it milk Milk. (laughs) (laughs) because they wanted to call it cream or half and half or something Mm. weird and so yeah i think the 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 real answer to your question tara is is we set out to do something nutritionally that wasn't being done in the dairy case we wanted to kind of give consumers the opportunity to buy something extremely unique and and what what was good for them and as we learned the nutrition side then we clearly understand that that comes in the fat and, and, and the grass goodness comes in the fat. It's the CLAs, the conjugated linoleic acid in the fat. It's the omega-6 to 3 ratio that gets healthier. And, and it truly becomes better for you and, and, and more filling. And, and Stephanie can follow up on the nutrition side. But that was the goal of our brand, and, and it has really served us well. So after we went organic, and and of course, we went on vacations to the Midwest to learn how to become organic farmers, because that's what dairy farmers do, Mitchell. (laughs) And um, then we went to Acres USA conferences and where we met a lot of other dairy um, folks and and agriculture folks. But also the keynote speakers were doctors making a difference in people's lives by teaching them to go to the farm instead of the pharmacy. And this was 20 years ago. So hook, line, and sinker as a mother with five little kids, and I also worried about and care of calves, um, I became this nutrient-dense foodie mom and started making my own bone broth, my own soups, and really paying attention and learning about old-fashioned ancestral eating. And it all comes back to whole milk, real meat, and all the goodness, the way God made food, and what keeps people healthy for thousands and thousands of years, and what did people, millions and millions of people eat and sustain themselves and have wonderful health. And that's what we do here as dairy farmers is grow that type of product. 
I don't know where we want to go next with this, Mitchell. Like I have, I'm interested in the A2 part. I'm also yeah. interested in the marketing, how you got started marketing your product there locally. Um, where do you, Mitchell, you take the next question. Yeah, let's hit on A2 because I'm like, I don't even know what the heck that is. And as you guys are finding out, like, this is not necessarily something I'm paying attention to. Should people be paying attention to A2 and explain what the heck we're even talking about there? I will say I gave him some background information last Tara night. Tried so to teach me. Tara, Tara tried to teach me, but I'm with you, Blake. I'm just a farmer, and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, A2 is the digestible protein in dairy. So historically, all dairy was A2. Mammals are A2. Um, breast milk is A2. Goat milk is A2. And when we came across the Devils in the Milk book and learned that goat milk is A2, but cow's milk has A1 component in it, most cows in America are modern breeds. And when you know that there's people that can drink goat milk, but they couldn't drink dairy milk, that was a, a aha moment for me. And when we learned about this in 2007. And so we started breeding our genetics to A2. You get one from mom, one from dad, or one from the dam, one from the sire. So you want, you're looking for sire genetics to breed into your herd of A2A2. Now it's more prevalent. At the time, we weren't able to find it except for in New Zealand. And um, so when people drink dairy and they're drinking A1, they get the A1, the, basically the protein is an amino acid chain, 209 links long. And there's seven links that don't break apart. There's a histidine instead of a proline. So they digest the dairy and it sits in their stomach. That seven links called beta casein morphine seven doesn't break apart. And so a lot of people will say, oh, I got lactose intolerant. Well, what's happening is because you have that protein that doesn't break apart, that lactose is fermenting in your gut and that gives you a bellyache. And then if you have a leaky gut, which most people do, now you've got a foreign protein going into your system and there's science that says that that is causing this autoimmune disease that people don't know really what's wrong with them. And the doctor says, well, go off gluten. That's a protein. Go off dairy. The you might be sensitive to the protein. And they do and they feel better. So um, there's anecdotal information that we hear all the time that people feel better when they drink our, our A2 organic dairy. I would simply add this too, also to the equation. And, and Tara, for you and the uh, other dairy farmers that might be listening, two-thirds of the world's population believes that they are lactose intolerant. And you know, that just doesn't make any sense to me. God didn't make people to not be able to drink milk. And, and so then a lot of people want to say, oh, well, they're not supposed, you know, they weren't meant to drink cow's milk. No, poo-poo on that also. I don't believe that. So, so when we learned about this, this mutated gene called A1 that is just a simple, you know, amino acid that's out of whack and it doesn't digest, it's like, well, aha, there's the answer. Two-thirds of the world's people are not lactose intolerant. They're, they're A1 intolerant and they're, they're having issues with the protein in milk. It's similar to folks that are now having the issues with protein in, in grains and, and that's the gluten intolerance. It's kind of new to us. Our diets, our health, our stomachs aren't what they used to be. And so it's now trendy to be, you know, intolerant to everything. Our milk is A2A2, meaning that, um, you know, there's, it's a simple DNA test with, with the animal finding out what, what gene they inherited from both parents. And, and that, that gives us, uh, I, I guess, a clean supply, if you will, of, of products. And so whatever we make, whether it's fluid or yogurt or cheese or um, kefir or whatever, it's, it's, it's going to be more digestible. 
for most folks. And we've got lots of people that have come to us and say, I haven't had dairy in 10 years or forever. And uh, I tried yours and it works for me. And so it's really encouraging to hear those stories and, and you know, touch with consumers. Do we know what the do we know what the percentage of the milk that's in the US market is? Like any any thoughts on that? On like how much like is it more common? Like is the milk that I'm getting from the store, is it probably A1 or it's A2 or Yeah, it it's a blended average uh, of both. And um, I would say in my understanding that 60, 60 to probably 70 percent of the milk that you're drinking or buying anywhere, the dairy products, is A2, A2. The rest, there's some A1, you know, percentage in there that might be as about, about in the 30s. And and so what happens is if a cow inherited, a, you know, A1 from dad and and, and a2 from mom. So she's A1, A2 is what we would call her. Half of her milk is, is good and half of it isn't in a sense from a, from a digestibility standpoint. And so what happens is, um, and this is the, the, the problem that we were up against. So we, we are organic, building a bunch of organic cows, uh, you know, 15 years ago that are A2. And then um, eight years ago, we cannot find a processor willing to take our organic A2 milk and keep it segregated through the process and bottled up and sell it. And so that's why we went out and did it on our own. And it's not something we wanted to, but it, it, we felt it was important to bring it to consumers and give them a shot. And so we ended up not even being able to find a creamery that was willing to bottle for us. So we had to buy a little facility. And, and so we now own our own processing to, to accomplish that. So before we let you guys go, we got we to gotta make a hard pivot here because in the notes, it says you guys got a whole pile of chickens here too. We haven't even talked about the chickens yet. Tell us about, tell us about these chickens because in the notes, you guys got a lot of them. We do. And really, our egg business is a pastured poultry where we have mobile chicken coops. It started as a way of raising kids. I mean, Tara knows growing up on a dairy, there's people that do all the jobs, but you want to raise your kids so you give them responsibilities. Maybe you get them in 4-H and stuff like that. And we were involved in that as well. But after our tours of dairies, one of the dairy farms we visited in Pennsylvania, they had portable chicken coops and the son was making a killing raising these and selling them at the local markets. So we came home and converted an old hay wagon to a chicken coop and moved it around in the field and started with 50 chickens. And before we know it, we had 500 and then we were at farmers markets and stores. And then Whole Foods calls us and we laughed and said, we're dairy farmers. We're not egg. We don't do this for a living, yeah. really. It's just a way of raising kids. But then it turned into a full-blown business, and now it's a separate LLC. We have 18 big portable coops. They're all sleds, and they're like two lean-tos facing each other with feet in them, and we move them twice a week with a big tractor. They're on skids. And when we move them with that big John Deere tractor, uh, it's on Tuesday and Fridays, and then the other four days of a week, we're washing eggs. Every day we're collecting and gathering eggs and every day we're um, feeding the chickens. But Sunday is our minimal work so that more people can have off on Sundays. But it's a full-blown business now and it's pretty exciting. And it normally has about 30 to 40,000 laying hens um, and we're producing about 20,000 eggs a day. 
That's amazing. I feel like that is the way it goes with chickens. Anyone that I follow or friends with that has chickens, it starts with like three. And then you get 10 and then you get 50. And then before you know, you're like, I actually have a business that I need to figure out what to do with these eggs. And it just keeps growing. So I love hearing that from you guys that it started with 50 and now you're just under 50,000. You know, like it just never stops. (laughs) Yeah. And and we started 18 years ago with that project. So. It was a big deal. It was a really neat event. And it also gave us exposure to working with the stores. And uh, at one point, four of our kids were all at Cal Poly together. And and, uh, so I had to do the egg deliveries and uh, on Tuesdays. And I just learned a lot about stores and the personality of a store. And that's probably what gave us the confidence to go ahead and do our milk brand when we did. So was the eggs the first product you got into a grocer and it was Whole Foods? Eggs were about 12 years in front of the the milk. Very interesting. Wow, that's a very um, interesting progression of businesses, I guess. You know, you're dairy farmers that get into Whole Foods with eggs and then come back around to milk and yogurt and others. Yeah, that's wild. I don't, uh, I don't know how, uh, if I could make room for that many chickens (laughs) running around though on my farm here in Iowa. I don't know how that'll work out. Well, any last questions, Mitchell, you want to ask before we... No, this has been wild and super interesting. And, and yeah, commend you guys on, like, the progression here, what you guys are doing. Like, really, really interesting. Obviously, you guys are super early into this. And now this space continues to really expand and more and more of the market really coming to this. And uh, so I think a lot of people can really learn from you guys' experience. And a uh, long time going into this, and a lot of work and a lot of years, but... Obviously, now it's like more and more the market is coming to you that it's, I think, really going to continue to pay off even more. You know, that actually gives me one question I didn't get a chance to ask. Do you feel like uh, being in the area you were in, like, gave you not—I don't think advantage is the right word, but gave you you opportunity to get, like, products like this that were very niche products, that were very specific, be able to get that into, like, say, the San Francisco Bay Area? You you would think that uh, we have all these advantages. I I absolutely look at it the opposite. Um, We started down this path because we were watching our friends build the 5,000-cow dairy in, in Kansas and all around the country, and we're milking a thousand cows here and competing, right? Stephanie said for the same, same markets with the same pay price, and that didn't work. And so I think that we have we were really at a big disadvantage because we're not close to the feed sources and we're not close to the marketplaces and the people and, and the large cities. So what we've done is we've just adapted. We've changed who we are and what we do and what we grow. And we've just absolutely made, you know, lemonade out of a lemon, if you will. You know, we get 80 or 90 or 100 inches of rain a year. And and that is now our biggest asset. And and it's, you know, green grass that grows all the time. Um, It's not easy daring where we're at. It is absolutely not easy. We tend to make it look easy from a distance and it's not. It's very difficult and... and, and, uh, Anyhow, we, we work at it. So. Yeah, and what we've tried to convince our neighbors of through the years by bringing speakers into the area, that our area where we live is very conducive to organics on the North Coast, whether it's from um, North Bay in San Francisco to, gosh, the Washington-Canada um, border, where you can grow green grass is the best answer is go organic. Um, because that is an area that's conducive. And, and we were early on that um, journey and we keep trying and trying. I mean, before we went organic, our cows were locked up 
Um, we did the three times a day milking and, and all that, that, you know, we listened to everything we learned at Cal Poly in high yield agriculture, trying to survive and knew that that wasn't a viable future living at this location. So we had to adapt. And, and, and as Stephanie says, go organic, I, I would substitute the concept for get paid twice as much for your product and, and then rethink everything. That's exactly what we did. I'm glad you guys shared on that because I think a lot of people, no matter where you're at, what struggles you're facing, it can feel like you're just at such a disadvantage. And you guys, farming, dairy farming everywhere is so unique and different and poses different challenges and turning those challenges into an opportunity. And your story speaks to that. So thank you for sharing on that note. Yeah, certainly when we started, we were, you know, we were we were the Mavericks, the pioneers. And, and uh, now in our region, uh, both of our our local creameries, uh, you know, the one 100 miles south and the one right here locally, just this year are now 100% organic. And, you know, I remember the day when I went to them and said, I'd like to make organic milk. And they're like, we're not interested. <laughs> so, so yeah, things have changed because it, it does work here well. So one quote as we're wrapping this up that I want to share that I've heard that you say is that consumer has the right to pay more to get extra. And then Stephanie also mentioned um, sharing to the local high school. She doesn't even mention organic, you know. And I think that's like the beauty of all of this is if you want to pay more to get something extra, you absolutely can. And if you want to have conventional milk, full fat milk, that should be your choice too. Like I love that you guys have both of that perspective that you've shared today. Um, so maybe just expand on that quote and how you came to share it um, a little bit, Blake. Sure. Um, so I, we were asked to, to talk at a uh, Stanford, so Stanford, the university, it was an IT in food, uh, so technology and food. And why in the hell we were there, I have no idea. But what we were asked to talk about, the subject was uh, why $10 eggs? And so $10 a dozen, and this is going back 10 years ago. And our son, Christian, would normally run out and do those kinds of conversation. He's quite dynamic. And uh, he was busy at a chicken conference somewhere. And so I had to go and it's a 600 mile drive. And so I'm thinking, why $10 eggs? Why $10 eggs? And I'm driving and driving and thinking, it's like, well, consumers have a right to pay more to get extra. That's who we are. That's what we're doing. And and, and the pricing is, is trying to reflect the uh, the value and the cost of what we 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 do or what we go through with our authentic chicken and egg program. And it's exactly the same now with our dairy and our cows. We're getting a lot less production, both at the chickens and the, and the, and the cows than the industry does. And, you know, that's a problem when the bankers here last week, but, but, you know, that milk is worth a lot more. And, and, you know, the only way we're going to get a lot more for it is sometimes uh, helping tell the story. And so that's why we started a brand. And I would also add, um, when, I, when I'm talking to these school kids and I, I look at a schoolyard of children today in our local community or, or even in a lot of communities, so many of them eat so much processed food and so much sugar. I just really want them to go back to whole milk. And I, we are passionate about organics ourselves. And as a mother, I'm 100% organa organic in our kitchen. I, after everything I've read and learned, and there's a great book that was written in the 1930s called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration by Dr. Weston A. Price, and where true health comes from animal-based foods. And like $10 eggs, yes, they're expensive, and but it, it's expensive to do it. Um, but an egg is a whole food powerhouse. Its nutrient density is amazing. Whole milk, whole food powerhouse. And if kids could have those two components for breakfast every day, wow, so many 
problems in America would be solved. Tara, you can clap now. Hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. I, um, I'm all about animal um, animal protein. Um, and just obviously that's my entire platform is sharing about how animal protein is not harming the environment is an important part of our diet and we cannot get rid of it. Um, so thank you so much for sharing on that. Um, Mitchell, I feel like you looking like you want to say something. No, I, I'm just sitting here taking it in. And, and I agree that it's like, you know, it's being able to connect with that consumer, being able to understand, like, we need to differentiate. We got to be competitive somehow and we got to be able to fit needs and somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to fill that that void. If there's an opportunity there, if the consumer wants it, somebody's going to do it. Might as well be us. <laughs> it might as well be us on the call that they're taking some of those opportunities and running with it. So I uh, definitely commend you guys for seeing that, you know, really early on and being able to take that and and uh, ride the wave, you know. So it's awesome. Yeah, thanks for sharing your expertise with our audience. I think there's so many valuable, like, just gold mines in this conversation of ideas and excitement and just encouraging people to kind of think outside that box. So thank you so much. Is there anything else that we didn't ask you that you guys wanted to mention today? I think maybe one thing for me is, um, you know, you, so you guys are, have this brand. What is the brand? How do you share about that? And how, where can people go to learn more? It's alexandrefamilyfarm.com. And then Mitchell, to end with your pun, um, growing up on a dairy, I loved a T-shirt we used to wa- wear, and it, on the back side it said "See Utter Side," and on the front side it said "Milk." It does a body good. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> on that line, I got to share one. I grew up in Humboldt County, where there was a lot of marijuana grown back illegally for for decades, and I I wore a T-shirt when I was a kid that said "Get high off milk. Our cows are on grass." <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> my dairy t-shirt, my family's dairy t-shirt says, um, gotta love that dairy air. And it's a cow's back end, uh, <laughs> a silhouette of a cow's back end. So there you go. Lots of great dairy t-shirts with lots of great puns. I love it. I'm going to have to get me one. I don't have any dairy t-shirts, so sorry. Nothing. <laughs> You're missing out. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much again for sharing with us today. Um as we wrap this up, I mean, there were so many interesting things we talked about. I mentioned that I love a good compost conversation, so I'm glad we touched on that before getting into the dairy products and the A2. Lots of good stuff. Yeah. No, it's been really, really interesting. Appreciate you guys coming on with us, and uh, I'm sure we're going to have lots more dairy conversations and stuff, too. And um, excited to be able to you know expand the podcast and get into more of these kind of conversations. I think it really helps to shine a light on another component of the industry, getting further away from just the row crop side of things like we have talked a lot about over the previous seasons. And now we can expand further because uh, we got Tara that knows what she's talking about in this since I do not <laughs> at all. I can at least just ask the questions, maybe. that's. I don't know that I know what I'm talking about. I can just ask the dairy farmers the questions. Thank you for having us. It's been great. It's good to, to meet you both. And uh, good luck with the podcast in the future. And we'd, we'd love to come back anytime. Definitely. You're also welcome to come visit our farm anytime. We love having visitors, especially other dairy farmers. Yeah, we'll have to do a family dairy farm trip and come see you guys. There you go. Family dairy farm trip. We can pack up and we'll just drive all the way out there. I'm sure from my place, it's only, you know, probably 37, 38 hour drive. It would be no problem. But that 
that's it for Fieldwork today. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Thanks to Kristen Schmidt, who runs our social media, and to Lauren Humpert, who is our project coordinator. Uh, thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. And be sure to check us out on social media. We're at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels. And we'd love it if you wrote us a review to help other people find us too. And give us a call with your comments, your questions. We love hearing from you. The call-in number is 651-228-4810. Again, 651-228-4810. Mitchell, are you... Are you going to end us with a, a good dairy pun? Of course. I mean, we'd be utterly excited that you'd give us a call and uh, and we can... <laughs> I don't know that we'll answer right away, but it's fine. You can leave us a voicemail. <laughs> utterly excited for your voicemail. We're utterly ending this podcast on that note. <laughs> Thank you. We got to go. Bye.